Well, this morning we're going to do something hard and do something difficult. We're going to take a step forward. We're going to go back this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go back to the book that we have been walking through for over a year now. And we're going to take another step forward in it. And even with the weight of grief and the loss that we have felt and that we are feeling and we will continue to feel, we're going to take another step forward, trusting that as we do, God will continue to remember us. That He's going to continue to be mindful of where we've been and where we are. He's going to continue to minister to our hurt in the next step. And then the next step after that. So we're going to go forward with the expectation that the steps that he's ordained for us to take are also exactly what we will need. And I can't speak for you, but as I have studied this passage in front of us that we're going to look at here in a moment, I have heard from this passage so much of what my broken heart needs to hear. And I pray that it will be the same for you too. In this passage, we're brought face-to-face with our fear. Numbing fear. Paralyzing fear. And we're brought face-to-face with the only one who can take all of our misplaced fears and exchange it for a proper fear that only grows in the soil of perfect love. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, according to Luke, a good news of a perfect love and a godly fear found only in the Lord himself. You can see the text printed for you on page 6 of your bulletin. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. And then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Our Father, this morning we do pray and ask, as we always do every week, that you would meet us by the power of your Spirit through the word that you have written through him, that you would meet us through your holy word, and that you would meet us in, with Christ. Help us see him in the text. He's all over these, these verses, obviously, but help him see, help us see, rather, how he is with us to confront our fears and to give us a better fear, to give us a fear that comes along with a wonderful love, the perfect love that you've given us through him. Do this for us this morning, Father, out of your mercy and out of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It was spoken by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his 1932 inaugural address as our new incoming president at the time. The statement is catchy. It has the ring of sophistication and insight to it. And spoken in its context, it carried a lot of truth with it. With the United States in the middle of the greatest economic disaster that we've ever endured, the Great Depression, a lack of consumer confidence in the banks and the markets, a fear, if you will, was truly an enemy that kept further investment and spending from taking place, which of course only made things worse, not better. And this was the situation into which, of course, Roosevelt found himself when coming to power in the early 30s. But if we isolate Roosevelt's quote, and we consider it as a proverb, something to try to fit into most situations in life, it fails, doesn't it? The only thing to fear is fear itself doesn't quite ring true when applied to many situations. Because our worst fears aren't merely phantoms of the mind. They're not merely baseless emotions and fleeting winds. Of course, there are such things as irrational fears. I have them. I'm sure that you do too. But the haunting fears, the haunting ones, the, usually the worst ones, they grow out of reality. Things that we've heard about, things that we've seen, maybe things that we have actually walked through and experienced. If you've been around our church for a while, you've heard me list some of my fears. Two of them show up in both stories in our passage this morning. 
being caught outdoors in a severe storm, and living through a real-life horror scene with no lights or cameras, just an ancient evil, a personal evil, that far predates you and me. But in both these stories, we also find two kinds of fear. A godless fear and a gospel fear. From Mark's account, which we would see in Mark chapter 4, we know that it's starting actually to become evening at the beginning of our, both of our stories. The sun is setting, and then the, Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat, and they start out from Galilee, which is in northern Israel. And it's on the west side of the Lake of Galilee, sometimes called the Sea of Galilee. And they're setting out for the east side. And often in fishing boats, there would would be a place in the back of the boat for one fisherman at a time to take turns to rest. A little space to curl up and lay your head. And Jesus seems to immediately head for this spot after a long day of teaching and ministry. And he falls asleep. And then the storm hits. You've heard Colin and I mention this before, probably... But the Israelites, they were not a seafaring people like the Phoenicians and the Greeks around them. For the Jews, the sea was where the forces of chaos dwelt. The forces of darkness, it was the place of sea monsters and unpredictable storms like this one. And now, for Jesus' disciples, chaos is hitting them with full force. And this, is, this probably had to be quite some storm because a number of these disciples were fishermen themselves, meaning they probably had seen a fair share of storms already. In other words, the storm must have been so severe that their fear was legitimate. They were not being drama llamas, making a big deal out of nothing. This was legitimate fear from a legitimate storm. And so they hurry and they go and they wake up Jesus. And what does he do? He rebukes the wind and the waves. And it's clear from the Greek phrase in verse 24 that the calm was virtually instantaneous. And then Jesus says, where is your faith? And so now we're left asking the question, for what? For what are you rebuking them, Jesus? Are are you really scolding them for being afraid of severe storm and winds that were already starting to fill up the boat, waves coming over them? And the answer is, Jesus was rebuking them for their fear. He was rebuking them for their fear, but what kind of fear? I mean, they were clearly terrified. This is how I would have felt in their situation. This is how I feel in many situations in my life, and you feel, I'm sure, often afraid, fearful. But they were not afraid in the sense in which we're commanded to have the fear of the Lord, and we'll get to what that means here in a second. But they had the kind of fear that God warns us more of than anything else in Scripture. And so when we look at Scripture, we kind of have two things going, operating side by side. We have two commands operating in Scripture, both of them kind of seeming to contradict each other. On the one hand, God repeats, 
Again and again, actually more often than he says anything else, don't be afraid, fear not. We can see it in almost every book of the Bible. And yet at the same time, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 1. The Israelites are commanded again and again to walk in the fear of the Lord, especially in the book of Deuteronomy. It's clear that we're supposed to recognize a difference. So what is this fear that the disciples are rebuked for and that we also often have? Well, it's not just a fear of circumstances. Sometimes we'll hear about a fear of circumstances. I will talk about a fear of circumstances. Maybe you will too, sometimes judgmentally of somebody else. Well, they're just too afraid of their circumstances. But this doesn't really go deep enough to diagnose the issue. Because fear of circumstances, it doesn't go far enough to diagnose the problem from a biblical viewpoint. If if fear of circumstances was all the disciples had, then Jesus would have said to them, "What's, what's the problem? Didn't you guys prepare for this? What's the problem? I mean, isn't the boat seaworthy? Isn't the masthead strong? Isn't, isn't the bow and the stern fortified for stormy seas? I mean, you guys are freaking out. I mean, don't you understand? Don't you know better than anybody that storms on the Sea of Galilee, they kind of blow over pretty quickly? Those are circumstantial answers to circumstantial fear. But that's not what he says. Because their fear of the storm wasn't down deep a fear of the storm. It was a fear that God wasn't watching. It was a fear that God didn't care. It was a fear that Adam and Eve and the serpent might just be right. That God might not be good after all. It was a godless fear. And that's the most paralyzing fear that there is, isn't it? But it also comes out of the most damnable lie, and this is what the next story is about. Preparing to disappoint some of you, maybe even on a huge level, because when we come to a passage like this, a passage with a man that has many demons inside of him, We just have a million questions about what we're reading. First, maybe, of all, might be the question, what in the world is demonic possession in the first place? What does it mean to be demonized, which is maybe a little bit better way to translate the Greek? The ESV translation in verse 27 is actually pretty good. It says that the man had demons. It's a good way to translate demon adzamai. But I'll tell you that scholars, they don't have a consensus about what exactly it means to be possessed or to have demons or to be demonized. We don't completely know, other than the fact that he clearly was afflicted beyond even levels of his control by these spiritual wicked forces. A second question that sometimes we want to know is, How do you know you're in the presence of a demonized person? How do do we diagnose this condition properly? 
And again, we're not really given a lot of answers in a definitive way to that either. What the Bible does, the Bible does say is that it, it, it recognizes that there is a difference between someone with a mental condition or a physical condition, something that's, that's arisen from simply having, having a fallen body and a fallen mind subject to illness and disease, which is something we all have, It recognizes that there's a difference between that and then someone who has a condition that's being brought about by the attack of spiritually dark spirits, fallen, unholy angels, demons. The Bible recognizes the the difference between these things, but here's what the Bible doesn't do. It doesn't tell us where the line is, and that's what we really want to know. It doesn't tell us where the line is. So do I think that there are people who are still demonized in our world today? Yeah, absolutely, I do. You bet. Have I met any? I don't know. If I did, I, I didn't know it, I guess. I think it might be more likely that my dad has met such people. He's a physician's assistant, and he works for a mental health clinic, a mental health doctor, a set of doctors in Oklahoma, and he goes and he visits different mental health facilities throughout the week, visiting with patients, spending time with patients. Sometimes when he and I get together, he will talk talk about some of the things he's dealt with and seen. It's been a couple times he said, might have seen a demon-possessed person yesterday, maybe. Maybe. But he also seems to probably have multiple personality disorder. Is that the same thing? Is there a link in those things? I don't know. I don't know. Dad is, dad is a man of science, for sure. But he is also a man of great, strong Christian faith. Right? And he goes into these situations daily. It's hard to know where the line is. I don't know. Good luck, Dad. I don't know. But this passage isn't trying to answer those questions either. What are we supposed to glean from this passage in terms of fear? Something very similar to the last story. The disciples just faced absolute chaos in the natural elements, pounding winds and massive waves and water sweeping over them. And now they're encountering a spiritual storm in a graveyard at night. Supernatural forces that are just as much out of their control, right? I mean, I'm reading this. I mean, it it recalls Gandalf's words in the Fellowship of the Ring movie when they're all trying to, like, hurry across the bridge in the caves of the Dwarf Kingdom. And there's this great flaming Balrog, this demon that's coming after them. And only Gandalf even knows what it is. And he turns and he looks at them and he's like, this foe is beyond any of you. Right, I mean, you, this, this line would be perfect right here. They're face to face with a literal army of demons. Jesus asks his name, not because he's wondering, but for our benefit, so that we can see the, the huge enormity of, about, of what he's about ready to do. And the answer comes back. From the demons. Legion. 
A legio, or legion, was the largest unit in the Roman army. It numbered around 6,000 heavy infantry, and it might even have thousands more of other types of troops, archers and slingers and cavalry. We don't know that this is necessarily supposed to mean that there were thousands of demons in this man. It might. So what's the power of one demon? I don't know. Greater than me, I know that. And this is why we're given the details of how the townspeople had placed this man in irons and chains. And he had repeatedly broken free of these chains. He'd broken right through them. What's the power of an army of demons? Again, we don't know for sure. We can't quantify it. But it's surely greater than the power of all the people in this room. Surely greater than the power of a Roman legion. And that's the point. I can't imagine what the darkness of that place had to feel like. But one man, one man is going to take all of them on by himself with a word. We're given an account of this conversation, the words that are exchanged between these demons and Jesus, which is instructive Unlike the disciples who are still trying to figure it out, they're still wondering and asking, who is this man in front of us? The demons know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus, son of the most high God. They know. And what are they in response to that knowledge? They're afraid. Rightly so. They're terrified There's an army of them standing in front of one of him, and they're terrified. They know who he is, and they know what will come someday. They know about the final end that will come for their kind, the final end to their work, and where they will be confined in chains made without hands to suffer forever and ever, and they're begging that that time has not come yet. They know better than anyone else present in these accounts who Jesus is, and they're rightly afraid, but it's not gospel fear. It is not the fear we're supposed to have. Why? Because they do not love Jesus. They hate him. They hate him, actually, and they merely fear his infinite power. And this brings us to what gospel fear actually is. The kind of fear that God wants us to have. In the 16th century, there was a German Reformed theologian by the name of Zacharias Ursinus. And he helps us here. Ursinus saw in scripture that there was a difference between what he called servile fear, what we're calling godless fear this morning, and filial fear. The kind of fear that we have in a father-child kind of relationship. Gospel fear. For a sinus, servile fear is the kind of fear that a servant has of an unloving, abusive master. The fear of torture, the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment, the fear of exclusion. But a sinus says of gospel fear that it arises from confidence and love to God. It does not turn away from God, but rather to God, and it hates sin above everything else. And as a result, fears to offend God. 
God whom he loves. Gospel fear is rooted not just in knowing who Christ is and what he can do. It is rooted in believing that Christ loves you and that he is for you. And it's the Gerizim man who has the demons cast out of him. And then the townspeople of the area that serve as an object lesson for the disciples on the difference between godless fear and gospel fear. When the man was was possessed by demons, he was in a state that actually represents where all of us are. Where all of us are in our rebellion against God. We may not be able to identify with being possessed by a legion of demons, but we can identify with these things. We can identify with the fact that the man, he starts out very isolated from others. He's lonely. He's extremely lonely. He's by himself all the time. He has an obsession with darkness, an obsession with decay. He's obsessed with death. Just as we are obsessed with our failures and our victimization and our deepest worries and our deepest fears. In fact, he's chained to them. He can't escape them. He's unclothed all the time. Demonstrating that his loss of dignity, a loss of self-respect, and a constant presence of shame, which has taken its place. Verses 35 and 36 give us the report of the man's condition after the demons had gone. As one modern scholar has put it, he's now clothed, whereas before he'd been naked. Jesus gives him clothes. He's now seated, whereas before he'd been roaming. He has a purpose and a sense of himself. He knows what he's about. He's not roaming to and fro. He's now associating with others. He's part of the community. He's in community now with Jesus' disciples as he sits at Jesus' feet. Whereas before, he wanted nothing more than to be left alone and solitude. He's now of sound mind. Because a relationship with Jesus doesn't suffocate our personality. It doesn't suffocate our minds. It gives us true rationality and true reasonableness. Which is why Christians start schools everywhere we've gone for the last 2,000 years. He's now comfortable in the presence of Jesus. He's glad to be with him. He wants nowhere else to be but with him. This man loves Jesus. He craves his presence. He desires nothing more than to learn from him and to obey him. He's aware of Jesus' power. He knows who Jesus is, but he's drawn to Jesus instead of being repelled by him. Why? Because of love. Because he's been loved. And the townspeople of the surrounding area, they're the opposite. They're the opposite. Even though they make a a careful inquiry into the state of the infamous man, even though they find him sitting there in his right mind and clothed, in other words, they find him looking like what a healed person should look like, 
They have blindness. They have so much blindness in themselves as to what healing should look like. They have blindness to who Jesus is. And their love for their own comfort above all else causes them to fear in all the wrong ways. I mean, with this Jesus around, who knows what other property we might lose? Who knows how much more this is going to... We already lost a whole herd of livestock. What else is this going to cost us? Who knows what kind of mischief he might cause, how he might use his powers to somehow upset the lives that we've become acquainted to living, the lives that we've become acquainted to cope with. What if if he brings chaos we know we can't control into our lives filled with the chaos that kind of seems manageable to us? I mean, the demon guy, he was frightening, no doubt, but listen... As long as he stayed outside the town, we were all right, usually. He was weird, but he didn't bother us most of the time. We'd learned to cope with it. It was manageable. But Jesus, obviously nobody's managing him. And that's scary. Let's get rid of him. calls to mind a quote, a quote from a U2 song where Bono says, I've held the hand of the devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone. What's Bono saying? That in my cold hard-heartedness, I run to the devil and I find comfort there. These people would rather have devils living outside their town than come to Christ. Even seeing the man who had had demons in him sitting at Jesus' feet, happy to be in his presence, it was no comfort to them. They'd rather live with the powers of darkness as long as the man kept to himself, giving them an illusion of control than with Jesus, who clearly nobody could, could, could control. And really, they're a lot like the people of Israel that we heard, read about, from, by, by Mark read to us from Numbers, they're finally led up to Kadesh Barnea. They're, they're led up to, like, they're within binocular distance of the promised land. And they send in the spies. And they find giants and large cities and untamed hordes of Canaanites in their way. And what do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to the Egypt. They want to go back to hold the hand of the devil. They want to go back to the powers of darkness and slavery because they had learned to cope with it somehow in some sense. And that coping gave them a false sense of control over it. But they'd rather do that than have a trust in God, a God who they couldn't control that was taking them into an unknown future. Why was that? Well, because they didn't properly trust God and know God. They weren't yet grasping how much they'd been loved and how much they would always continue to be loved. Instead, for the Gerizines, their fear of Jesus, it's like the fear of the demons. In some sense, it's worse because the Gerizines don't even properly recognize who he is. 
and their fear keeps them from wanting to know. But even though there's a flat rejection of Christ by this community, Jesus does not completely reject them. He gets into the boat, he crosses back over the other side, but Jesus does not completely reject these Gentile Gerasenes. He leaves them a witness. He leaves them an evangelist. He leaves them a man who used to know nothing but the fear of Satan on levels that none of us will ever understand. But now this man knows Jesus. He knows that Jesus loves him. And as a result, he lives in the fear of the Lord, wanting to please him by staying and testifying to Christ's work. Even though in his heart, he'd rather go. Even though in his heart, he'd rather go and follow Christ and be with him in the boat and go back to Galilee, he stays out of loving and fearful obedience to the Lord. This man is preaching and he's proclaiming loudly and openly what Jesus had done for him. Like the sinful woman that Jesus met in the Pharisee's home at the end of Luke 7, he had been saved from much and now he loves much. Out of a gospel love and a gospel fear, he then goes on to obey much. But these passages tell us some other things about following the one that we fear. In all things, in every chapter of your life, in every adventure and tragedy and hardship and every time of blessing and plenty, we follow a Savior who's in control. We already see it in the very first verse in our passage. In our passage, Jesus, he's the initiator. Verse 22, Jesus gets into the boat first and says, let's go across the water to the other side. I mean, the disciples, if they had known what the dangers were going to be on the water and among the tombs, they would not have bought tickets for this ride. I wouldn't have. And that's the point, isn't it? You and I, we, we're not going to choose to follow Jesus into a lot of the dangers that he's going to take us into either. But Jesus is in control. He's in charge. And the safety that Jesus brings is not the safety of leaving us on the shore during storms. It's not the safety of leaving us in the car while he walks into the demon-infested night. He takes us with him. He takes us with him. But what does that mean? What does that also mean? It means that he's with us. He's with us. And and this passage also teaches that he's always, always mindful of us and with us and planning and guiding each step, even when it most seems like he isn't. This is why we're told of Jesus' nap during the storm. Because as his followers, followers, as his disciples, we all know what it feels like to think that Jesus is napping. What it feels like 
to go and to beat on the doors of heaven until your knuckles are bruised and bloody and you're thinking that nobody's listening, nobody hears you. And Jesus says to us through the story of him calming the storm, I'm always listening. Always. Even when you think I'm not, I'm always with you. Even when it feels like I'm far away. In the same way that Jesus went to sleep, in the same way that Jesus went to sleep and awoke again to calm the storm, Christ is soon, for these disciples, going to go a lot further than this. He's going to die. And he's going to lie in a tomb himself. And the disciples would feel his absence most of all. But just like Jesus wakes up here in the boat, he's going to rise again from true death there. Not sleep, death. He's going to rise from death. And he's going to rise to the greatest resurrection life. And he's going to do it to promise us that he will one day step into our graveyards and he will take us by the hand. Then too. To rebuke death and sin forever. That we might be as he is. And the same way that Jesus cast an army of unclean spirits into a herd of unclean swine in an unclean land, all of whom drown in the sea, he himself is soon going to be called unclean by the religious leaders in the crowds. He's going to be called a blasphemer. He's going to be called the prince of demons. He's going to be called Satan himself. He's going to be tortured like the demon-possessed man was. He's going to become a curse hanging on a cross. He's going to take on the full strength of hell itself. And he's going to descend into the abyss of death. Only to rise again. To once and for all defeat the powers of Satan that we could never hope to overcome. And in this, in this is perfect love. This is perfect love. And as John says in his first letter, the perfect love casts out all godless fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And leaves the security of knowing that you are held in the hand of one who will never let you go. One you are ready to follow with a gospel fear and love. So believe that this morning. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lord and God, we too are weak and frail. We are assailed by fears daily, hourly, sometimes, even as we confessed earlier in our confession of sin. We are a people, a needy people. And so we ask, Father, that just as the disciples in their time of need, when they were confronted with forces so far beyond their control, just as they came and pleaded before Christ... Let us be a people 
who flee to Christ. Let us be a people who turn to your Son in our fears. Let us be a people who come and fall at his feet and cry out to him in prayer, cry out to him in our need, trusting that he will see us where we are, that he will meet us where we are, that he will give us what we need, even sometimes when it's not what we want. Make us a people who believe these things and follow after you with a gospel fear, a fear of displeasing and offending one who has loved us so well out of a love for you that you give to us by the Spirit. Shed shed abroad your love for us in our hearts that we may love you with a greater love than we already have. Do this by showing us not just what Christ has done in our past, but by showing how he's with us and working in our present, by turning our eyes to what he will do for us in our future. Do these things for us, Father, in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen.